This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. We're due for a visit with one of the most famous detectives of all time, Sherlock Holmes. And, of course, we'll as well enjoy the commentary of his able assistant, Dr. Watson. Of course, we would never have heard of this fabulous character without the creative genius of British author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is known for his proficiency with observation, forensic science, and logical reasoning that borders on the fantastic, which he employs when investigating cases for a wide variety of clients, including Scotland Yard. Though not the first fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes is arguably the best known. Guinness World Records listed him as the most portrayed movie character in history. Holmes' popularity and fame are such that many have believed him to be not a fictional character, but a real individual. Numerous literary and fan societies have been founded that pretend to operate on this principle. Widely considered a British cultural icon, the character and stories have had a profound and lasting effect on mystery writing and popular culture as a whole, with the original tales as well as thousands being written by authors other than Conan Doyle. What training, though, did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle receive to give him the authority with which to write these works? Well, from 1876 to 1881, Doyle studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh Medical School. Now, during that time, he studied practical botany at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. So, as after his graduation from university in 1881, he was the ship's surgeon on the SS Mayumba, during a voyage to the West African coast. He completed his Doctor of Medicine degree in 1885 in an advanced degree in uh, Scotland, beyond the usual medical degrees. In 1885, he set up medical practice in Elm Grove, South Sea. The practice was not successful, and while waiting for his patients, Doyle returned to writing fiction. He had no patience, and according to his autobiography and his efforts to be an ophthalmologist, they were a failure. But what a writer he turned out to be. And now the episode entitled, The Mystery of the Vanishing Elephant. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell about an exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now let's see if our old friend Dr. Watson's expected. He's out on the patio. Dr. Watson? Uh, 
Sit out here this evening, McCoy. Oh, swell idea, Doctor. It certainly is a beautiful night. It certainly is. Draw up a chair and make yourself comfortable. That's it. You uh, care for some of my tobacco? <laughs> I think I'll stick to a cigarette, thanks. Well, Doctor, all ready for tonight's adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, I'm all ready. And a strange story it was. A very strange story. How did it begin? Stormy December night in 1900 with the rain pelting against the Baker Street windows? Or perhaps with you and the great Sherlock Holmes rattling along in a cab beside the foggy waterfront chasing some desperate criminal? <laughs> Quite a good story to tell yourself, Mr. Bartell. No, no, no. The adventure I'm going to tell you took place many, many thousands of miles afield from our Baker Street headquarters. The exact in the Indian city of Parbutipur, about 200 miles north of Calcutta. It must have been a mighty important case that made you both travel that far. It certainly was, my boy, yes. It was announced in the, in the summer of the 1894, I remember, that Holmes received an urgent summons from the Maharaja of Parbutipur. After five weeks at sea, we reached Calcutta. And a few days later, found ourselves on the veranda of our hotel in Parbutipur. As we sat there talking to the Maharaja's brother, Robert Singh, we could hear the faint throb of native drums and the haunting wail of an Indian lute coming from the bazaar. And so, gentlemen, I thought that before I took you over to my brother's palace, I would tell you something of the problems that beset him. An excellent idea, Mr. Singh. Uh, yes, indeed, sir, particularly as you've just told us your brother, the Maharaja, is not in the best of health. Uh, just so, Dr. Watson. Interviews tie him, and in any case, his command of the English language is not so extensive as mine. And now, sir, the problem, if you please. As to the exact problem, Mr. Holmes, I am not completely informed. My dear brother has not seen fit to confide his entire troubles, even to me. In fact, until your arrival yesterday, I did not even know that you had been sent for. But I can tell you that his worries are centered on the safety of the white elephant of Parbutipur. White elephant? But possibly you are not aware that white elephants actually do exist. Oh, yes, though I understand that they're extremely rare. Oh, extremely, Mr. Am I right in thinking that in the East, a white elephant is considered sacred? Quite right. Break to you, sir. Well... In 1750, the first white elephant was presented to my great-great-grandfather, and with it came a legend. The legend that the Maharaja's rule would be happy, healthy, and successful only as long as the elephant flourished. If the animal were to die, then the reign would come to an end, and the Maharaja was doomed to a sudden death. Mr. Singh, who was responsible for the origin of this legend? Oh, a good and wise man who traveled from the mountains beyond Nepal. He it was who brought... The first elephant to my great-great-grandfather. And how has the legend worked out in actual practice, sir? Its prophecies have come frighteningly true, Dr. Watson. Oh? The first elephant was killed by his mahout, his own keeper, after my illustrious ancestor had dismissed man for incompetence. Later, my great-great-grandfather was himself killed in a native uprising. And so it has gone on, gentlemen, since then. Amazing, amazing. When the elephants have died, and they have always died, the Maharaja of Vaputipur has died a violent death soon after. And as each new Maharaja has succeeded to the title, the wise man from the beyond the mountains has appeared, and with him, a new sacred white elephant. The last appeared four years ago when my brother inherited the title. Oh, but it can't still be the same man, well, sir. Why not, Doctor? Well, <laughs> I mean to say... That'd make him a couple of hundred years old. Mm, a trifle less, I fancy, Doctor. <laughs> really, my dear sir. Seems to me your story's the wrong way round. Men don't live to such an age, whereas elephants are noted for their length of life. That's true, Watson, but apparently not the sacred white ones of Papa the Poor. 
Uh, Mr. Singh, uh, in the event that uh, your brother's death, who would become the Maharaja? <laughs> I should, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I can see what you are thinking, sir. The next in line to succeed to the title would have an excellent motive for wishing animal death. <laughs> the logic is inescapable. The thought had no personal implication, I assure you. Well, I'm very anxious to see this fabulous animal. The sacred white elephant is never seen except at the yearly festival that celebrates another anniversary of the Maharaja's rule. So the animal is only seen once a year, eh? Yes, Mr. Holmes. And when is the next anniversary, may I ask? In two weeks' time. Oh, our arrival seems to have coincided very nicely with the ceremony. Yes, Watson, a fact that I'm sure is not coincidental. Well, Mr. Singh, I'm very glad that you told us the legend of the sacred white elephant, and now I suggest that you take us to the palace. I'm most anxious to make the Maharaja's acquaintance. This is the council chamber, gentlemen. If you will wait here a moment, I will go and see if my brother is well enough to receive you. Very well, sir. Mr. Holmes, I'm not easily impressed. This palace is absolutely staggering in its magnificence. Yes, it does rather take one's breath away, doesn't it? It does. This floor is of the finest marble. And unless I'm much mistaken, that magnificent rug is a genuine Bacara. Yes, by Jove, it is. I can swear that the staircase we mounted a moment ago had railings of solid gold. You did, old chap. This is a country of paradoxes, where opulence beyond the dreams of Midas rubs shoulders with the direst poverty. Yet looking at a palace like this, it's not hard to see why India is called the brightest jewel in the diadem of the British Empire. Good Lord, what's that? That is an elephant trumpeting. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, Do you suppose it's the sacred white one? Undoubtedly. You will recall the Maharaja's brother told us it's the only one at the palace. It's an odd sound. Yeah, it's a very comforting one. The animal seems to be in the best of health. Who waits in the Maharaja's council Good gracious me, you gave me a start. I didn't hear you come in. And my friend and I are waiting for an audience with His Highness. No one can hold audience with the Maharaja. Please to leave. Now look here, my good fellow. Watch, I'm please. please to leave. Watch, what? We've traveled 12,000 miles to see the Maharaja, sir, at his request. In any case, his brother is with him now arranging an audience. I am Mada, Maharaja's physician and chief counselor. And I tell you, you cannot hold audience day. And I tell you that I have the slightest intention of leaving the palace without seeing him. You defy the authority of mother? Saila! Now I warn you that if I have any... Oh, I'm glad you're back, Mr. Singh. This fellow told us that we couldn't see your brother. And furthermore, he seems to labor under the misapprehension that he can have us thrown bodily out of the palace. Mother, you do not understand. These are the gentlemen my brother wishes to see. From England he has sent for them. It was against my counsel they were summoned. No good will come of this. Follow me, gentlemen. My brother, the Maharaja, will see you now. But please do not stay with him too long. He is far from well. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson... I'm so happy you have arrived here safely. It was great imposition to ask you to travel so far. Oh, not at all, sir. I only hope we can prove of material assistance to you. Ranji? Yes, Robert? I wish you would permit Dr. Watson to examine you. Yes, this was a to suggest myself, sir. In fact, I, I brought my medical bag along just in case. Mada would not approve. Mada not believe in... Occidental medicine. I do not trust Nada. I do not think he wishes you to get well. 
Please, Ranji, let the doctor examine you. Very well. But you not tell now, man. And now, um, what seems to be the, the trouble, Your Highness? Uh, my, my eyes. They torture me. Night and day, they torture me. Yes, I notice they seem very inflamed. Now, let me take a look at them. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now, uh, open oh. them a little wider, please, sir. Huh? I throb, burn, night and day. Night, day, burn. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's distinctly reddened. However, this isn't anything very, very serious, sir. What you're suffering from is a case of what we call conjunctivitis. What you do relieve pain, doctor? Well, some eye drops will give you relief in no time, sir. I have some here in, in my bag. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Perhaps medicine will help. Yes, yes I'm sure it will, sir. Here you are, now. this small bottle and an eyedropper. Uh, this is, is an eyedropper. Uh, just put a few drops in the corner of each eye, and I'm sure that you'll, you'll get some relief in no time at all. Thank you, Dr. Watson. You think there is nothing seriously wrong, doctor? Mother gave it as his opinion that my brother's eyesight was in serious danger. Well, pardon my saying so, I think it more likely that my medical knowledge exceeds his. I can assure you there's nothing serious in the matter with your brother's eyes. I'm happy you say so. <laughs> now you will please excuse me while I take medication and rest a little. We discuss my problems later. Quarters already prepared for you in Paris. You'd not find Mr. Holmes? Not at all, sir. Though in the interim, I should like to employ my time to the pool by inspecting your sacred white elephant. No. No, that I cannot allow. I must talk to you first. I think, sir, you will do well to give me permission to see the animal. I already have my suspicions as to your reason for bringing me here, and it will be best if I'm completely informed when we have our discussion. Very well. Can do no harm. Here, take ring, show ring to Sucro. He's keeper of animal. Sucro will let you into elephant house when he sees ring. Thank you, sir. And please rest comfortably. I'm sure that your worries are nearly an end. Come on, Watson. This was the elephant house. Why in thunder doesn't the keeper open the door? I imagine because his mind is preoccupied with music. Knock again, old fellow, will you? Uh-huh. He heard us that time. Yeah, about time. We must be knocking here for five or six minutes. Well, I'm sir. He am Maharaja side. Kumko astimatic dio. Mr. Holmes, the Maharaja's ring certainly should do the trick. He didn't want to let us in until you showed it to him, oh, did he? Good and faithful <laughs> servant, our friend Sukro. Uh, what's happened, Holmes? The white elephant has disappeared, what? Disappeared? That's ridiculous. Elephants don't just disappear. Maharaja Sad Kibolo. Kali Umkabolo. Where's he going? I told him to go to the Maharaja and give him the news. He was to tell it to no one else. But Holmes, this is ridiculous. We heard the animal trumpeting here less than half an hour ago. 
How can an elephant be spirited away in that amount of time? That's what we have to find out, my dear fellow. I've often had Indian rope tricks. Now we have a first-hand opportunity of solving a new mystery, the problem of the disappearing elephant. Holmes, this is possible. We spent half an hour searching this elephant house. After all, an elephant isn't exactly insignificant. I doubt if you're going to find it under those boards in the corner over there. True, Watson, but nonetheless, there are interesting clues to be observed. Clues? What are clues? Come over here, old chap. Bloodstains? Great Scott, you're not suggesting that's elephant's blood? It's hard to say, though I would venture the opinion that it would require the blood of several human corpses to produce an equivalent amount of blood. In any case, you will notice that the stains are dried and old. Hello? That must be the elephant keeper back from the palace. Dr. Watson. It's not a Maharaja's position. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, at once you must come back to the palace. What wrong, sir? It is the Maharaja. Death has come to me. Dead? Great heavens. Exactly what happened. Sukro, keeper of the elephant, came to the Maharaja. He said he had a most important message to deliver. He had. I told him to deliver it. Then what happened? A few moments later, I have cries. I went to Maharaja's room and found him in delirium. He was saying about the elephant having disappeared, his brother, and I tried to give comfort to him, but we could do nothing. His breathing became more and more labored. Finally, it stopped altogether. So the doom of Pambodipur is fulfilled once again. The elephant is gone and the Maharaja's reign is ended. Come on. We must go to the palace. Yes, I must examine the body at once. You're certain it was a natural death, Mr. Mutter? Positive, Mr. No Holmes. symptoms of poisoning, for example? Mr. Holmes, I have read some of your sensational stories in which obscure deaths are attributed to a subtle oriental poison unknown to western science. I can assure you that if the Maharaja has been poisoned it has been caused by no poison known to me. When did he last eat? Over uh, eight hours ago. Possibly died of shock, home, Shock and hysteria. When he knew that the elephant had vanished. Yes, it's possible, but it's murder just the same. Murder? Why do you say that, Mr. Holmes? Because whoever caused the elephant to disappear did it with the deliberate intention of ending the Maharaja's reign. A diabolical plot, and one that I intend to overcome before this day is out. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Case of the Vanishing Elephant. Tell me, Doctor, did you examine the Maharaja's body? Yes, of course I did, Mr. Bartell. Holmes was convinced that the Maharaja had been murdered, but I could find no trace of foul play. After my examination, I joined Holmes in our quarters, and I gave him my... Found that ending? Like natural death to me, Holmes. No traces of poison? None that I could see. Well, it's hard to be certain without an autopsy. Did you suggest one? Yes, but the new Maharaja won't hear of it. It's against their religion, apparently. Yes, I was afraid of that. Meantime, I've been conducting a cross-examination of some of the palace servants. Oh? What do you find out? Principally that all of them heard the elephant trumpeting this morning. Did any of them suggest how the animal might have been smuggled out to the palace ground? They insisted that such a feat would be impossible without their knowledge. Well, what's our next move, Holmes? To interrogate the one person who I'm sure can give us the true story of the elephant's disappearance, its keeper. Remember, we haven't seen him since he took the message to the palace. I suggest we return to the elephant house and have a, a persuasive talk with him. This must be the house. Only one that's near the elephant pen. 
ramshackle-looking place, isn't it? Extremely. Sucro! Sucro! Don't tell me that he's vanished, too. <laughs> this is as he can get on my nerves. Oh, 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 oh. Sucro! I think under the circumstances, we'll take the liberty of entering. Sucro! Look, Holmes. Look on the floor. <sighs> We're too late. Lord, what a horrible sight. His throat's been cut. Obviously, another murder. He knew the secret of the vanishing elephant. Let's have a look around. Ah. Uh, so it was quite a, quite a musician. Look at this weird assortment of instruments. Made lute. We heard him playing that today as we approached the elephant house. What's this? Looks like a sort of giant megaphone. It's a musical instrument of some kind. Observe the mouthpiece here. Let's see what kind of noise it makes. Touch. Hey, the instrument sounds exactly like like an elephant trumpeting. Of course. Trump's car white and I think it's before. Come on, Watson, back to the palace as fast as your legs can carry you. The mystery is solved. <laughs> Say you have solved the problem of the missing elephant, Mr. Yes, sir. And also the cause of your brother's death and Sucro's murder. Indeed. That is very important news. Uh, won't you both sit down, please? Uh, thank you, sir. I get... uh, please proceed, Mr. Holmes. Thank you. At first, the elephant did not vanish today. The beast must have died a natural death months ago. All that happened today was that I discovered its absence. Are you suggesting that my brother knew the beast was dead? I am, sir. But he was afraid to publish the news. He knew that his rule would fall into a state of chaos if the fact were known. You yourself, sir, have told us how strong is the native belief in this legend. Well, how did he dispose of the elephant? Unobtrusively, over a period of time, the bloodstains in the elephant house would indicate that the animal had been cut up into disposable fragments, which could be removed by the faithful sucro without attracting suspicion. All this time, though, the elephant horn was blown at suitable intervals to indicate that the sacred animal was still alive. But if the Maharaja knew the beast was dead, why did he die of shock when he received the news? I think the answer to that question, Dr. Watson, would be that my brother died of shame when he knew that his imposture had been discovered. Oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Little far if you don't mind my saying so. Now, I'm certain the reason your brother brought me to your country was to reveal that imposture to me. He knew the day was coming soon, and he must show the elephant to his people. The festival would have been held in two weeks' time, I think you told us, sir. I imagine that he wanted me to devise a method of smuggling a new white elephant into the palace grounds before that time. Tell me, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, why did my brother die today? Because he was murdered. Just as Sucro was murdered later. Murdered? Oh, very ingeniously. Uh, By poison, but not, as you might expect, by any subtle eastern poison. No, one of the... uh, most recent of Western poisons was used, a poison unknown to Oriental science. Delirium, followed by a strangulated breathing, is highly typical of the newly discovered poison, hyosiamine. He hadn't eaten for eight hours. True, Watson, but you see this, um, hyosiamine was administered to, uh, an eyedropper? Good heavens. The poison penetrates with unusual ease through the membranes of the eyes, if you will recall. Yes, you're right, but Joe, it does. Must have been that physician fellow, Ma, Ma, whatever his name is. No, my dear chap. Uh, this has been a case of confusions. Let's do a little clear thinking now, shall we? You see, uh, we were deceived by the apparent 
sequence of events. We discovered the elephant missing and thought that fact had caused the Maharaja's death. Whereas his murder was quite a separate matter. The poison must have been placed in the eye drops while we were in the elephant house. Precisely, dear chap. And uh, when the murderer saw how the Excuse problem me. of the missing elephant confused us, he killed its unfortunate keeper to prevent us from winning the truth. Yes, you're strangely silent, Mr. Singh. Am I, Mr. Holmes? I am fascinated by your flow of unassailable logic. Of course, uh, you realize that I am now the Maharaja, the King of Kings, an absolute ruler with all power, including that of the police. Do you, uh, do you care to denounce the murderer to me? Oh, come, come, sir. Right. It's time the buttons off our foils. I'm well aware that you studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh. That the motive, the opportunity, and the knowledge to kill your brother. The murder of Sucro was probably performed by an underling. Great Scott, what a shocking... You are disgrace. a clever man, Mr. Holmes. A very clever man. Clever enough to realize that an absolute ruler, a ruler with all powers, including that of the police, is not apt to denounce himself. Again, your logic is unassailable. Goodbye, gentlemen. I trust your voyage home will be a pleasant... Day. I warn you, sir, that I shall make a full report of my findings in this case to the British Commissioner of this state. Why should he prove more effectual than the great Sherlock Holmes? Goodbye, gentlemen, and above all else. Look, the murderer makes my blood boil to think that he can't be brought to justice. He can, and he will be. Civilized laws of the Occident cannot be enforced here, then we must fight him with his own weapons. What do you mean, Holmes? We have a farewell talk with Mr. Mather, the dead Maharaja's physician, friend, and counselor. <laughs> This is a terrible story you have told me, Mr. Holmes. My beloved ruler murdered by his own brother. Yet, he cannot be made to account for his crimes. He can be, sir. If you will help, Mr. Holmes. Of course I will. What can I do? Try and obtain the eye drops before they're destroyed, will you? Have them analyzed by a Western scientist and forward the reports to me in London. I'll take the necessary action. I will try to do that, Mr. Holmes. But if I fail... There is one other way I can avenge my master's death. In a few weeks, the new Maharaja will be enthroned. Ah. I understand you, sir. The wise man from beyond the mountains of Nepal will bring a new white elephant. Perhaps an elephant that will not live very long. You understand me perfect, Mr. Holmes. I can promise you that the elephant will die in a very short time. And with it... The new Maharaja, my master, shall be avenged. That was quite a story, Doctor. Quite a story. And tell me, what did happen to the next white elephant of property port? By an extraordinary coincidence, it died the day after the new Maharaja's enthronement. That scuttle was in... Self-killed in an uprising that occurred just a few days later. You know something? I think I could be very happy as an Indian Maharaja. Oh, really? mm-hmm. Beautiful palace, yeah. beautiful women, beautiful jewels. <laughs> and every year on my birthday, the natives would give me my weight in gold. Uh, you know, I could learn to like that. That is, if I tried. Yes, and every week you'd speak to your subjects over the radio and tell them all about Petri wine. Oh, now, now, wait a minute, Doctor. I don't always talk about Petri wine. <laughs> That's right, you... 
You don't always talk about Petri wine. You've got to sleep sometime. <laughs> all right, go on. Kid me about it. But Petri wine is worth talking about. After all, what other wine has the tradition behind it that Petri wine has? Don't forget the Petri family has been making Petri wine for generations. Since way back before there were electric lights and telephones and things like that. They've been making Petri wine since the 1800s. And handing down from father to son, from father to son, every bit of valuable knowledge and experience. There's no doubt about it. The Petri family really knows how to turn luscious grapes into wonderful wine. That's why you can't go wrong with a Petri wine. Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Doctor, how's about giving us a clue to next week's story? Uh, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you an adventure in which uh, I'm afraid I... <laughs> well, I didn't exactly cover myself with glory, shall we say. But I think you'll find the story an exciting one, my boy, because it's composed of equal parts of romance, of international intrigue, and of sudden death. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Engineer's Thumb. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for The Great Gildersleeve, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Harold Perry to star as The Great Gildersleeve. Kraft presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> The Kraft Cheese Company, who also bring you Bing Crosby every Thursday night, present each week at this time, Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. Spring has come to a certain home in Summerfield. Spring with its bright colors and its new flowers. And here on his hands and knees in the hallway, tacking down a new bright-colored flowered carpet, is our friend, the great Gildersleeve. The moon shines bright, it's light all night, deep in the heart of Texas. I'm stuck, Leroy, because my boy, I'm short of carpet taxes. The coyote's wine takes some of mine. Deep in the heart of Texas. Well, thank you, son. I'm almost done. Oh! Gee, Unc, what did you do? If I hit the wrong nail. Here, let me finish it for you. All right. There we are. Uh, thanks, Leroy. You certainly knocked with a knack. <laughs> oh, I'm tired. Let's sit down on the steps for a while, huh? Oh! What's wrong, Uncle? I just discovered I wasn't out of taxes, after all. Say, what's going on out here? You're getting the carpet down, Uncle Mort, or is it getting you down? Yeah, hello, Marjorie. I, I had misplaced some tax, and I had just found them the hard way. 
You better take them out of your pocket before you ruin your trousers. Oh, this is really just an old pair, but I'll unload the tacks anyhow. Yeah, there. Oh, well, what do you know? What is it, Uncle? Why, here's my lucky half dollar. So that's where it was. No wonder I haven't been getting the Blake's breaks lately. <laughs> yeah, but you watch. Things are going to be better now that I found it again. Really, Uncle, you believe in the most childish superstitions. <laughs> How indifferent. Yeah. Uh... Excuse me, Mrs. Gilfleet, but here's a telegram that just came for you. Oh, thank you, Bertie. Yeah. Telegrams fascinate me. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen to this. Uh, dear Mr. Gildersleeve, congratulations. The Gentlemen's Fashion Guild of New York has selected you as one of the ten best-dressed men in Summerfield. Well, signed J.C.B. Halchester, President. Why, Uncle, that coin does bring you luck. One of the ten best-dressed men. Why, George, I can hardly believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither can I, Mr. Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why not? Well, just look at yourself in them old work clothes. Huh? It's a good thing there ain't no television to telegraph. They'll stay to elect you to ten worst-dressed men in town. Oh, Bertie. Bertie, it's ten o'clock. Someone had better remind Uncle Mort of his appointment downtown. Do you know where he is? Yes, me standing in front of the mirror in his room, no doubt, trying to decide which one of his neckties harmonizes best with the rest of his haberdashery. Oh, do you think so? <laughs> Undubitably. <laughs> He's been that way ever since he got that telegram. Oh, you mean the one from those fashion experts? That's right. And making him one of the best press men in town is making me one of the worst work women in town. I'm wearing myself down to a shadow. <laughs> well, I knew it doesn't show. <laughs> In fact... Ah, good morning, Marjorie. Hello, Bertie. Say, how do I look? Does my cravat blend with the rest of my ensemble? Yes, sir. But I was sure you were going to ask us if your tie harmonized with the remainder of your clothes. Yes. <laughs> Uncle, yeah. you look as if you just stepped out of a bandbox. Now, don't kid me, Marjorie. Whoever saw a bandbox big enough for me to step out of? <laughs> Where are you going, Uncle? Well, Mr. Halchester's in town. He's invited me to meet him at the Ritz-Summerfield. Oh, you mean the men's clothes designer? Yeah, I hope I look my best. Oh, you do. Uh, oh, that must be Judge Hooker. Send him right in, Bertie. We're saving rubber by riding downtown in his car. <laughs> oh, good morning, Judge Hey, look at those duds You'd look like a tailor's dummy, Gildersleeve You didn't talk so much <laughs> I'm sorry if my sartorial splendor disturbs you, Judge But as one of the ten best-dressed men in Summerfield Who, you? Who says so? The Gentleman's Fashion Guild of New York Never heard of them yeah, From the looks of your clothes, you've never even heard of gentlemen's fashions <laughs> As Mr. Halchester said to me this morning Who's Mr. Halchester? Mr. Halchester is a famous style authority. He's the man who picked me and the other nine snappiest dressers. How'd you do it? Over the telephone? Yeah, over the telephone. He's stopping at the Ritz-Summerfield. I'm going down to meet him. Say, I'd like to meet him, too. You mind if I come along with you? Not at all. That suit of yours should give Mr. Halchester a good hearty laugh. <laughs> What's wrong with this suit? Oh, nothing that a rock, a rope, and a river couldn't cure. Mr. Gildersleeve, come in, come in. Oh, this is a pleasure indeed, Mr. Halchester. Uh, this is a friend of mine. 
Judge Horace Hooker, a close friend. Uh, Judge, I want you to know Mr. Halchester. Oh, everybody knows Mr. Halchester. Glad to meet you, sir. Uh, I'd like both of you to meet Mr. Leslie, one of New York's leading tailors. How do you do? It's a pleasure. Me too. Uh, Mr. Leslie makes most of the clothing I design. Oh. Uh, Mr. Gildersleeve here was on our ten best list for Summerfield. Ah, uh, yes. Excellent choice. And I think he has a very good chance of making our first team. Uh, you mean... Yes, the ten best-dressed men in America. Oh, no. <laughs> but then, why not? How do you make your selection? Oh, on a number of counts. Huh? Taste, style, figure, carriage. Gildy could win on the last two. He's got a figure like a carriage, all right. <laughs> Ignore him, Mr. Halchester. He's just jealous. He's so skinny, his tailor has to put pads in his trousers so his knees will bag. <laughs> yeah, go on, sir. Well, another big point is extent of wardrobe. Oh. Gildy should win that one, too. His wardrobe extends farther out than... No, see here, Hooker. Are nice clothes your hobby, sir? Oh, yes, uh, Mr. Leslie. It always has been. You see, I was elected the best-dressed fellow in my class at college. After I introduced peg-top pants and yellow-button shoes. Uh, I'd like to see uh, some of your ensembles, Mr. Gildersleeve. I suppose, of course, you have a country squire suit in Orkney Twist. Yes, sir. What? Orkney Twist. Oh. You know, that new hand-woven suiting? Very popular in New York this season. Yes. Uh, have you any of it with you, Leslie? Only that boat I was taking out to Hollywood. I I'll bring it in. He's a master with a needle, that Leslie. Oh? Oh, they're mad about him in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, probably the last boat of Orkney Twist left in America. Pretty loud material, isn't it? That just shows your lack of taste, Judge Hooker. That orange diagonal stripe is just what the chocolate background needs to set off the little blue dots. <laughs> Well, you're right, Mr. Gildersleeve. It's the rage. Yeah. Mr. Leslie, I just had an idea. How would it be if you made me a suit out of that uh, Corkney twist, huh? Don't be foolish, Gildersleeve. How can they get a suit for you out of that bolt? Well, there can't be more than 12 or 13 yards there. Yep. Hooker, I only require five yards of cloth. But if you keep putting in, you're just going to need six feet of dirt, and that's all. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, what do you say? I think it might be arranged. Oh, splendid. Gildy, are you sure you can afford it? Afford? Why, the question of payment doesn't enter into this judge, Hooper. Hooker! Thank you. Uh, if Mr. Gildersleeve is taken with this material and wishes a suit whipped up, he shall have it at no expense. What? Oh, that's wonderful. If No, I couldn't let you do a thing like that. But, my dear man, we'd be delighted. Oh, no, at least let me pay the cost of the material. You needn't do anything of the sort. But I insist. Oh, well, all right, if it'll make you any happier. I doubt it. Yeah. How much is the material? Oh, why, speak of it. I mean, nothing. Huh? Uh, what is it, Leslie? Oh, it didn't cost us much, uh... Thirty-five, I think. Thirty-five dollars? Why, that's very reasonable. Yes. You require five yards, don't you? Yeah. Five yards at thirty-five a yard. That makes, uh, a hundred and seventy-five dollars, doesn't it? If it does. If nine goes into seven. Oh, my goodness, it does. <laughs> Mr. Halchester speaking. Hello. This is the man who was just up there with Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, hello, Judge Rucker. Hooker. Hooker, Mr. Halchester. I wonder if you could make me a suit just like Gildersleeve. You want the same suit? Yeah, but not the same size. Well, uh, I thought you didn't like that material. I didn't at first, but the colors sort of grow on you. Well, I'm not sure we have enough of that Orkney twist. But I don't take much. Only about two and a half yards. Say you'll do it, Mr. Halchester. I'm not going to take a back seat to Gildersleeve, that old Brummel with a big bumper. <laughs> well, um, maybe. You will? 
When do you want to take my measurements? Uh, how about tomorrow morning? I'll be there. Meantime, I'll send a check right over to seal the bargain. Let me see, two and a half yards, thirty-five dollars, uh, eighty-seven dollars and fifty cents, isn't it? Yes, uh, $87.50 for the cloth and the same for the tailoring. Uh, comes to exactly $175. What? Oh, the tailoring. Oh, I hadn't figured on that. You didn't charge Gildersleeve anything for tailoring. Oh, that's true. But Mr. Gildersleeve is a prominent man with a style following. Poppycock. Who'd ever be dumb enough to follow that big buffalo styles? Well, for one, um, you. Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> well, I'll send the check over this afternoon. And Mr. Halchester. Yeah? Have you selected anyone as the best-dressed judge in town yet? No. Well, I hope that my buying this suit won't influence your decision. <laughs> <laughs> Why, that old... Hey, Leslie! Yeah, what is it, Chesty? Another sucker just hooked himself. Yeah, who? That judge was here with a fat chump. That makes 11 best-dressed boobs we catch in this town. Chesty, I gotta hand it to you. This is the sweetest switch on the suit racket I ever heard of. It sure is. Now, uh... What size would you say we should get for the little squirt that just formed? Uh, he'd take about a 32 in a boy's suit. <laughs> okay, then. Wire Joe to airmail us one 32 boys and one big one. Say, um, uh, 48 stub. Okay. Uh, and tell him to leave the seams open. Uh, sure. Say, what's the real name of this horse blanket material? You mean Orkney Twist? Yeah. At the factory, it's known as Backstretch Burlap. <laughs> Now let's return to the great Gildersleeve, who is preparing to return to the Ritz Summerfield for his first fitting. Uh, hello, Polkney. No, if you want my opinion as a style expert, you should wear a white mess jacket. Yeah, with a black bow tie. That's right. Oh, no trouble at all. Call me anytime you need sartorial guidance. Goodbye, Polkney. Isn't it just a little too early to be wearing a white mess jacket, Uncle? No, not for Polkney, my dear. He just got a job as a soda jerker. <laughs> Well, I've got to amble along now. By the way, what's the time? Haven't you got your watch? <laughs> no, if I carried it in my vest pocket, the bulge might ruin my silhouette. <laughs> Isn't that silly? It certainly is. <laughs> I read it in the fashion magazine. I wonder if Bertie has pressed my top coat yet. Oh, Bertie! Yes, it's Mr. Gillespie. And I put a nice flower in the buttonhole, too. Oh, thanks. The geranium. <laughs> well, that's better than no flower at all, or is it? <laughs> My, Mr. Gillsleeve, it sure is a chore balloting for you. Huh? But when I see you strutting down the street, I nudges myself and I says, Bertie Lee Coggins, you may work hard, but the result is worth the effort. Oh, thank you, Bertie. And just to show my appreciation, here, you can have back the geranium. For me? Well, thank you. Hi, Uncle. Say, did you see the big write-up about you on the paper? Uh, you mean all about Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, the well-known businessman being selected by a famous New York fashion designer as one of the best-dressed men not only in Summerfield, but possibly in the entire country? Yeah, that was it. No, I didn't see it. <laughs> How do you know all about it, Uncle? Well, one of the reporters on the paper happened to be talking to me on the telephone, and... I guess my clothes just sort of crept into the conversation. <laughs> was that why you was trying to call the newspaper all morning? If no, Bertie, I was... It was has anybody got the time? 
<laughs> yeah, it's ten past one. Oh, I'll have to hurry right down and try on that new suit Mr. Halchester designed for me. Uh, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. Everybody. I know it's going to look nice on you, Uncle. Yes, and lots of luck, Mr. Gillsleeve. Yeah, I hope you have a perfect fit, Uncle. Oh, yes. What? Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, send him right up. Okay, let's trot out that 48 stub. I got it. Looks too big. Probably fit him like the skin on a raisin. <laughs> well, then you better do a good alteration, Chab. Now, watch your step. And remember, you ain't back in the tailor shop at Leavenworth, or else you will be. Oh, uh, come in, Mr. Gildersleeve. I hope I haven't put you two gentlemen to a lot of trouble. Oh, no. Mr. Leslie's a very fast worker. Oh. Why, he's practically made that suit fly. Oh, how nice. Could I try it on now, please? Of course. Just slip out of your coat. Yeah. Yeah. And now slide into this one. <laughs> Thanks. I can hardly wait. Yeah. Now button it. All right. <gasps> what do you think, Mr. Leslie? It fits him just like the skin on a grape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you're going to get a lot of comments on that coat. Yeah. Uh, don't you think it's a little too roomy? Well, for some people, maybe, uh, but not for you. Oh. Uh, you're the type that can stand a little room. Oh, can I? Well, uh, if, what do you think of the sleeves? Are they wearing sleeves over the knuckles this year? <laughs> oh. Well, uh, not quite. Oh. Uh, they should be taken in. Oh, and what about the lapels? Uh, if I move my head, the points tickle my ears. <laughs> well, uh, they should be taken in, too. Oh, and uh, the way it droops, I mean drapes in front, <laughs> I can't tell whether it's a loose sack suit or tight double breaster. Well, in that case, you should be taken in. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm not giving you too much trouble, Mr. Leslie. Oh, no, not at all. When I sized you up, I must have been using a rubber tape measure. Oh, very good. Uh, now, if you're ready to try on the trousers, Mr. Gildersleeve, here they are. Uh, just step into the next room. The trousers. All right, thank you. I'll be right back, gentlemen. Oh, brother. Gee, that's the worst-looking botch yet. I don't know how I'm going to fix that coat up. Now, don't worry. All we got to do is send to the factory for a 44 long. Yeah. And when it comes in, use the back of this one and the front of the new one. What do you mean? Well, this guy's got a tricky shape. He's a 48 stub in the back and a 44 long in the front. <laughs> okay. But aren't we taking a little loss that way? So what? These suits only cost us nine seventy-five wholesale. I know, but why should we? Here he comes. Whatever you do, don't let him get a look at himself in a mirror. He'll jump out the window. Uh, I'm afraid these trousers are a trifle too tight. Holy smoke! You gave him Judge Booker's pants. Uh, oh, come in, come in. Yeah. I know, Mister Gildersleeve. Uh, in fact, I'm a bit disappointed with the way the whole suit has come out. Oh. So I'm going to have Mr. Leslie recut the entire garment. Oh, say, I don't want you to go to all that trouble for nothing. Well, let's not say for nothing. Say for a slight alteration fee of nine seventy-five. Oh, well, that's awfully nice of you. Oh, don't mention it. I always welcome the opportunity to make a little change whenever I can. afternoon. Is Mr. Gildersleeve home? Yes, ma'am. And who is it to see him? I am. Excuse me, but who's you? Mrs. Salisbury Twitchell. 
Oh, the Mrs. Twitchell. Well, come right in and rest your umbrella. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Mr. Gillsleeve, I have the honor to announce the arrival of Mrs. Strawberry Twitchell. <laughs> yeah, who? Well, I wonder what that old... Ah, uh, Mrs. Twitchell. <laughs> I was just saying, I wonder what that old friend wanted. <laughs> Will you have a chair, Mrs. Twitchell? That isn't what I wanted, Mr. Gildersleeve. Huh? I'll explain my visit simply so you can grasp it without too much of a struggle. Oh, thanks. Uh, Mr. Hopalong Cassidy, the movie star, arrives in Summerfield in two hours to aid our big defense bond drive. He does? Why, he's my favorite movie star. I'd like to meet him. You will have that opportunity. One of the members of my welcoming committee dropped some milk on his foot and cannot attend. If, uh, why should dropping a little milk on his foot keep him away? If I must go into detail, he's got a broken toe. The milk was condensed in cans and in a case. <laughs> Uh, therefore, Mr. Gildersleeve, in order that we are not faced with the situation of a welcoming committee consisting of 13 members, uh, will you join us? Yes. <laughs> yes, gladly. Incidentally, whatever made you think of little me? Well, it was that story in the paper regarding your selection as one of the best-dressed men in town. Uh, <laughs> Newspapers exaggerate so, don't they? Oh, well, if you mean this old smoking jacket, well, don't worry. You'll really be bowled over when you see my appearance at the station. Mr. Cassidy's train arrives at 5.52. Now, please try to be there on time. And if any photographs are taken, kindly refrain from waving your handkerchief at the cameraman. Goodbye. Uh, well... <laughs> Uh, Jim, what? Uh, I couldn't help listening. Hop along, Cassidy. That's Bill Boyd. Yes. Can I come along and see him, huh? Can I? Why not? Uh, oh, I know why not. I have to stop at the hotel first and change into my new Orkney Twist ensemble. But you aren't supposed to pick it up until tomorrow morning. Well, if they promise it for then, it's a sense it'll be already now. And I needed to impress Hop along, Twitchell, and Mrs. Cat. I mean, vice versa. <laughs> but why can't I just come along with you, huh? Oh, I guess you can at that. If you wait downstairs in the lobby. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> It's all right, Mr. Halchester, but don't you think the style is a little too juvenile for me? Oh, not at all, Judge Schnooker. Hooker. <laughs> Hooker, sir. Pardon me. No, I purposely designed that suit along boyish lines to bring out the, uh, the Mickey Rooney in you. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. I hadn't pictured myself that way lately. <laughs> oh, you're the Mickey type, all right. <laughs> With this suit, I sort of feel like I should get a free baseball bat. <laughs> For the price I paid, you should throw in a pitcher from the Dodgers. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Yes? Who's on his way up? Mr. Gildersleeve. Huh? Thanks. Did I hear you say Gildersleeve is on his way up here? You heard the man. Oh, he mustn't find me here. I'm trying to surprise him. Can't I hide someplace until he leaves? Uh, why, yes, uh, right in the next room. Oh, thank you. Uh, let me know. Let me know when he's gone. Hey, what's Fatcher doing coming around now? He isn't due till tomorrow. By then, we should be on our way to Florida. Oh, he don't worry me. But there's a guy from the Better Business Bureau waiting in the lobby. Uh-oh. Let's get out of here. Now, take it easy. We got our bags all packed. All we got to do is take an earlier train. Where's that timetable? Here, I, I got it marked. The streamline will leave in 30 minutes. Can we make it? Yeah. Only what are we going to do with that judgy in there? Or pudgy out there. <laughs> Shh. 
Now hide the judge's trousers in your suitcase. We'll work the old pants trick on both of them. Uh, enter, Mr. Gildersleeve. You'll excuse me for coming so early, but I wonder if I could get my suit now. Oh, of course, Mr. Gildersleeve. Only uh, first, there's one little detail. Oh, yes. Uh, we'd like to compare the measurements of the trousers you're wearing uh, with the new ones. Of course, of course. Uh, Would you mind taking them off? Oh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> you don't know how nice it is if you do this for me. <laughs> yeah, here you are. Uh, thank you. Now, if you'll kindly wait in the next room. Oh, anything to oblige. <laughs> Uh, just make yourself comfortable in there. Yeah, don't worry. I will. <laughs> Deep in the... <laughs> Judge Hooker! <laughs> what are you doing hiding in the corner and without your pants? Same thing as you are. Being fitted for one of those Orkney twisters. Oh, getting a suit behind my back, eh? That's pretty low, Judge. And by George, I'm going to complain. Uh, Mr. Halchester? Uh, Mr. Leslie? Uh, that's peculiar. They're not here. Not only that, their bags and clothing aren't here either. What? Hey, I don't see my pants anywhere. My pants are gone, too. Yeah, this is going to be one of my bad days. Now, now don't get in a panic, Gildy. Maybe they just stepped out into the hall. Come on, let's look. Yeah, let's look in the hall. Well, you go first, Gildy. Uh, okay, you think it's going to be all right? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> No, it isn't all right. <laughs> Judge, there's something awfully funny looking around here, and I don't mean us. How about phoning downstairs? No, I can't. The telephone wires have been cut. Look. No question about it, then. They were crooks, all right. Yes. Fine people you introduced me to, Gildersleeve. Yes, and a fine judge you are, Hooker. You can't even recognize a crook when he steals your own pants. <laughs> My goodness, my pocketbook was in my trousers. It was? <laughs> well, I never get mine. Look, <laughs> I always keep it in my coat. You old jumping jeeps, they did get my lucky half dollar. What's that? Hear that? Huh? Maybe it's all just a joke. Why, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Come on in, boys. Yes, come on in. If Leroy, what are you doing here? Gee, I'm glad to see you, Uncle. I was waiting in the lobby, and once the Halchester came down and checked out, I didn't know what to think. You checked out? Where'd he go? When he passed me, he was telling another man they'd have to go like 60 if they wanted to catch the Florida train. Say, where are your pants? On their way to Florida. <laughs> hey, Judge, we've got to stop them before they pull out of town. How? We can't dash down the station in our shorts? Uh, couldn't we pretend we're running in a marathon race? <laughs> Not me, brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got an idea, Unc. Just take the blankets off this bed, wrap one around each of you, and go to the station that way. Take the blankets. You're a bright boy, Leroy. But we'd never get past the lobby. Well, how about sneaking down a fire escape? There's a taxi stand right below. A taxi? That's it. Come on, Hooker. Grab a blanket. But we can't get away with this. Sure we can. When we get to the railroad station, I'll pass you off as a couple of Indians looking for a Pullman reservation. <laughs> <laughs> Stop! Wait for us! It's no use, Gildy. We'll never see our pants again. Yes, nor my lucky half dollar either. Well, what was lucky about it? Yes. Say, Unc, you better be careful. Your blanket's dragging. It is? Oh, <laughs> Yes, Gildy, you look like one of the ten best-dressed beds in town. Yes. 
Is that so? Why? Oh, hello, Mrs. Twitchell. <laughs> Fancy meeting you here. Don't speak to me, Mr. Gildersleeve. Just because we are here to welcome a cowboy star doesn't mean that you should come dressed as sitting bull. <laughs> I never did like come her. Come on, come on, let's get out of here before it's too late. Oh, oh, oh it, it is too late. Uh, hello, officer. What are you guys doing running around here in blankets? Come on, get into the station master's office here before you attract a crowd. But, officer, we were just chasing a couple of crooks who stole our pants. Oh, there they are. Well, Mr. Halchester and Mr. Leslie, so they got you too, huh? Hello, Patso. Hiya, Judge Crooker. You poker! Fine work, officer. I don't know what you're talking about. One of these birds tried to pass a counterfeit coin at the ticket window. Oh, but, officer, it wasn't mine. It belongs to this guy. Uh, who, me? Is this yours, buddy? A counterfeit? Oh, my goodness, it's my lucky half dollar. <laughs> Sorry, but our time's up. Good night, folks. <laughs> Original music heard on this program was composed and conducted by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to be with us again next week at the same time for the further adventures of the Great Gildersleeve. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.